Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, your host, with Betrayed by Hospice. Thank you, Marty, for giving us this forum. The reason for this show is to warn people that the hospice you once heard was compassionate and came in at the end of life to give care and support is no longer that hospice in most cases. Some of you may have had a positive experience with hospice and received compassionate care and support. Many of our guest speakers, as well as myself, have experienced a very different hospice. All hospices are not bad, but many have gone rogue and they do hasten death without the patient's knowledge or consent. You need to be aware of this before you lose a loved one. Unsuspecting people's lives are being shortened by hospice with opioids, antipsychotics, drugs resulting in starvation and dehydration, and leaving behind families who are in shock having witnessed their death and been powerless to save them. People are being enrolled that do not meet the criteria, but maybe they've been in and out of the hospital and they're costing more money and it's cheaper to end their life. Most of the people are in their elder years, but in many cases, as the one you'll hear about tonight, was not elderly and still his death was hastened by unscrupulous medical predators. Families are lied to as the patient goes into a coma and medical staff say it's the dying process. The drugs most often used are Ativan, Haldol, Fentanyl, Seroquel, to name a few of those. We'll discuss them at the end of the show if we have time. The same words and lies are told to each family like in a script, the same as the drugs are typically used. They're identical. It is our intent to inform people about the potential dangers, terminology, and red flags of current hospice. Stealth euthanasia is happening across the country as elderly and disabled are being targeted for early death and deemed unworthy of life. You have the right to question doctors' decisions, refuse the drugs, be a part of what the plan is, and to refuse hospice altogether. Never accept what you're being told without verifying it. We have gone through medical records line by line many times, and if an unbiased person were to read the records, They would also agree that the case was outright death by excessive opioids, antipsychotic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. If any one of us was young and healthy and were given the same amount of drugs, the same time frame, and for the same duration, we would have died also, but not from any disease. These cases are real, and yet the main media and the government is ignoring what is happening because it's saving money. During tonight's show, if you have comments or questions, you may select one on your phone and you will be put into a queue to speak later. Tonight, our guest speaker is Liz Eisner, and she will tell you what happened to her husband, Alan, who is only 58. Liz will tell you what occurred the days preceding his hastened death on September the 19th, 2015. Hear how they were both tricked into believing hospice was there to help them and how quickly he was put into a coma against specific directions. Liz is also the founder of the Facebook group Murdered by Hospice that is growing daily. Many people did not know where to go. That site has increased. When I came onto the site, I was like 140. We're over 400 now, and it is increasing daily. People need a place to come to where they can discuss what has happened to their loved ones without people saying, oh, that didn't happen, you're just grieving. So it has been very helpful to us, um, and I'm very, very grateful that Liz has put that side up there. The members of the group have witnessed firsthand their loved ones being murdered, and that 
is the correct term, murder. Liz, thank you for agreeing to tell Alan's tragic story with us this evening. I know how hard it is for you to discuss this again and reread the medical records. I'd like to turn it over to you and let you tell us what happened. Well, thank you, Marcia. Um, he was 58. He was disabled. Um, he'd been disabled since 1984, so it was about 31 years. Um, he was on Medicare. Um, and I'd like to start out by um, telling you uh, about a year before the diagnosis, um, he'd fall. well, I found him laying on the floor. He'd fallen, and um, he wouldn't wake up. Um, I yelled, I screamed, he, he wouldn't. I had to call 911, and they came and got him. And, um, and they took him to the emergency room, and he was uh, admitted into ICU, uh, where he stayed for five days, and it was from dehydration. Um, and... Uh, since then, that time, that um, was about a year, uh, he was on several rounds of antibiotics, um, orally, um, topically, um, for infections, and he'd had a problem with his nose, and he was using antibiotic ointment there. And then um, in about March of 2015, a bump, a little bump developed on his eyelid and went to the doctor and she gave him antibiotic ointment, and he took that, um, and then it was refilled, and he took that. And meanwhile, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then he started having vision problems, and so he went to the eye doctor who said, it's not your eyes, and sent him for a CAT scan, and they found a mass. Um, and then we went, so we were sent to Charlottesville, um, and he had a biopsy, and the biopsy came back. They, they, it was undetermined. And mean, meanwhile, so I'm had been listening to uh, cancer doctors and alternative therapies, and uh, um, heard about aspergillosis, which is a mold disease. And I um, researched that, and Mayo Clinic. I learned that. 97% of your sinus issues are from fungus, um, and he'd been exposed to mold, um, and his diet and uh, the antibiotics all contribute to that. Uh, I found aspergillosis is a mold disease, and he had all the symptoms of that, um, the one-sided face swelling, um, and I wanted him tested, and um, I had called the Charlottesville oncologist, and I had heard about a drug, an antifungal drug, and I said, can he, you know, I suspect this may have something to do with it. Um, I'm not saying it's not cancer, but I would like to rule this out. Can, would you please write a prescription so he can try, try it? And he refused, um, and, you know, I was very upset, you know, just let him try. Let's rule this out. So we went back, a second biopsy was um, recommended. We went back there, and the doctor uh, said, look, instead of putting you through another biopsy, if it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, let's just call it a duck. And I <laughs> was a little, you know, I went into asking him about these mold diseases and um, aspergillosis, and he said, it basically told me to sit down and shut up. He said, no, it's not that. And I said, well, how do you know? And because I wanted him tested for this, you know, to rule it out if it, you know, if it was that instead of cancer or in addition to, um, you know, treatment. The, the right treatment is crucial because he could die of that you know, either or, but um, he refused, and he he said, um, no, I was so mad, I said, you know, I have done a lot of research, and he said, I know you have, and you've done a good job, and I said, well, how do you know, you haven't given me a chance to say anything, ask questions, 
but um, I had found that where um, in your fungal diseases they can form masses. Uh, they're called aspergillomas, and a lot of times there are misdiagnoses um, for cancer, um, and not uh, for they're actually uh, fungal diseases and not cancer in some cases. So I was upset. We left, um, and then I proceeded to find a doctor who would test him. Um, I did find a family doctor. She didn't know, um, and but there was another test, a urine test, and she said, I'll get back to you to find somewhere to have it done. She never did. I called, and, you know, you know, no answer on that, not yet. So we found another doctor, and I just asked her, a really nice family doctor, and I said, please, this was a drug I had heard about that I asked the oncologist and wouldn't give me. I said, you know, would you um, let him try this? And she did. She prescribed it. Um, the next day after taking it, he felt awful. And I, that when you're on any fungals, they um, will produce what's called a Herzheimer effect and just some severe side effects like flu-like symptoms and so forth. So he felt pretty bad for the next few days, and he started having anxiety. And so I decided to take him to the emergency room, not that it was so severe, but instead of waiting for a two-week appointment down the line at the, his regular doctor, go ahead and take him. Maybe they give him something to relax him. Um, and so we went there, and they prescribed him, uh, I think it was Xanax or something like that. And um, well, they gave him something there, and he was fine. Um, and we went home, picked up the prescription, and it was, you know, it worked a little bit, but not so much. And the next day he was, you know, basically the same. Um, so I decided, let's just go back, went into the emergency room, and uh, the nurse looked at his chart and said, well, they didn't prescribe what they gave him here. But anyway, so the doctor came in and decided, um, well, why don't we go ahead and do another, uh, oh, it was MRI, I think, or CAT scan, one or the other. And uh, he was claustrophobic, so I said, well, he had had to be given something to keep him calm his nerves for the first one, and so they gave him something. I didn't know what it was, but I found out it was Dilaudid <clears throat> later. Um, and so um, the doctor came back in and said that the tumor had grown, um, and he offered to admit him for observation, and then a social worker came in and um, told me about, you know, well, my options two were a nursing home or hospice, you know, because he had been, you know, diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I, the second biopsy um, results had come in, and there were they weren't they weren't even sure which which type of cancer it was. They said it was either um, squamous cell carcinoma or another one, but they seemed to think it was the squamous cell. Um, and I was told that that was, you know, a common form of cancer. Um, and before he went to the emergency room for to be admitted, um, we had gone to the cancer center and talked to an oncologist there who said um, it was a rare form of cancer. So, you know, did they even know what they were talking about? But um, regardless, so uh, when he was uh, admitted, he they put him on uh, morphine and Ativan. Now, my husband wasn't having pain from cancer. Well, you didn't even know that's what he had, right? Right. Well, I, he, I knew he had a tumor, so it could be cancer mm -hmm. or one or the other. And I mentioned to the doctor about aspergillosis, and he, um, uh, what he, he said, I, he offered to call an oncologist. And I thought, well, an oncologist, and they're going to want to do radiation and chemotherapy, which my husband was going to do, but he changed his mind because of the, you know, severe what it does to your body. Um, so, uh, um, and, you know, I told him, you know, he, he'd been prescribed this, um, antifungal and, uh, you know, of course they always say it's never the drugs and maybe it wasn't, I don't know. All I know is, you know, he was anxious, but he wasn't in pain and, um, I mean, he had suffered from headaches for years and years. He had temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, and he took aspirin, but 
However, he had um, stopped taking so much, so that tells me he wasn't having any pain from cancer. Um, but anyways, yeah, no, he should not have been put on those drugs, you know, more especially morphine, you're, you're not in pain. And um, so uh, he was calm, and um, the next day hospice came in, and there was three ladies I think, and the social worker was there. Um, I talked to them, and they assessed me to find out exactly what I needed, and they were going to promise to do everything, you know, as they do. Whatever you need, we're going to do. Um, I, my, my fear, because he was so medicated in the hospital, I, I'm like, I just can't take him home like this because I had tried to help him to the bathroom. We both almost fell and I didn't want a recurrence of him falling and laying there again or injuring himself. He'd also fallen um, after that, too, um, while at home. I'd forgotten about this, and he injured his tailbone. So he had some pain from that, um, but he wasn't on anything um, for that. Um, so anyways, hospice came in, and they assured me. I said, I'm, you know, I'm afraid he's going to fall at home. Uh, well, we're going to attach a monitor on him, and if he moves, it'll go off, and we'll come running. <coughs> and um, the social worker told me there weren't any beds available in the uh, nursing home that was right next to the hospital. I thought and that he would get better care in hospice, this facility, because they had eight beds and I think three or four nurses. So, you know, mm -hmm. fewer patients, they'd be able to, you know, take care of him. And, you know, I just had full confidence he'd be okay. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, and when he was in for observation, um, you know, they told me it's just for 24 hours. So I had to make a decision, and I'm like, okay, you know, he, at least he's going to be safe there. Um, that day, um, his face had started swelling more, and I didn't know it at the time, but morphine can cause facial swelling, and it, and it just could have been from the disease. I don't know. But um, the doctor prescribed a meta, uh, it's like pre prednisone, cortisone, uh, but he was transferred to hospice. Yes, yes, I forgot the name of it. Um, but yes. he was transferred to hospice before he got it. Um, I followed the um, a rescue vehicle up there that they transported him in, and I was like 20 minutes behind them. And when I got there, he was asleep, um, and the uh, hospice representatives were there, and we were talking. And that was my first, uh, my instinct was no, bad instinct. Um, he wasn't on an IV and I said, I'm having second thoughts here about this. And, you know, he needs to be on IV. And they told me he, uh, they don't give IVs. I said, I should have put him in a nursing home. And I was told that nursing homes don't give IVs, which was a lie. I didn't know it then. But I found out after he died, I did call that nursing home next to the hospital, and they do give IVs. So these people lie to me repeatedly when I ask questions. Um, and if you're lying, you're not doing anything wrong, why are you lying? Um, so I was sent to do paperwork, which I just signed anything that was in front of me. I wanted to get it over with and get back to him in case he woke up. And by the way, he didn't wake up in there while the four of us were in there talking. So I don't know how much medication they gave him, but... but um, uh, next, I was sent to talk to the nursing supervisor. We talked for a little while about the diagnosis, about the antifungal medicine. Um, and the only plan of care I was told about was we're going to keep him comfortable. That was it. That was how it was explained to me, nothing else. Um, I assumed he gets out of anamorphine. Um but yeah, and I can I back you up one second? Yes, yes. When he was at the hospital before you left, he was mm -hmm. alert and talking to you, correct? Um, uh, he was asleep, but before that, yes, he was. Um, 
the doctor would come in and ask some questions, who's the president, you know, and so forth, what day is it, and on and on. So he was talking. Um, he was groggy. Um, and uh, so, yeah, okay. he wasn't comatose. But um, so, I, I, as I said, um, no plan of care was explained to me, no drugs, no interactions, no nothing to, you know, look for in these drugs as far as side effects. Um, I didn't know that combining Ativan and morphine is lethal. Um, and if they had told me, I would have said no. I did express my concerns of him being over-medicated, uh, you know, because um, I was afraid he was going to fall, and that's why he was there because he was over-medicated at the hospital. It was, he was just too droggy. And so um went back <coughs> to the room, and, um, of course, my husband's asleep, and that's the way he stayed. If he did wake up at one time, and he said, um, are you my wife? Um, and slurred speech. He's never not known me. And I was, you know, you know, so that... I think is one of the side effects where they can't see too well. Um, but, yeah, so I um, he went back to sleep. Um, oh, and I had asked for that, that drug that was prescribed, I, you know, the dexamethasone, and the nurse couldn't find any order for it at all. I said, well, he was prescribed it at the hospital. I want him to have that. Um, she was going to check. Um, about 9 o'clock, um, I decided I'm going to go home, and I did. Um, about 11.30, I called the hospice to check on him, and they told me he fell. And I'm like, oh, my God, how did this happen? And the nurse said that, oh, he must have, he, he pulled out the alarm. I'm like, well, how did that happen? He's asleep or groggy. And anyways, um, she said, he's fine. He's in a jerry chair. Um, she didn't tell me, you know, he was injured badly or yelling or screaming. But I found out through medical records that they gave him Haldol. Um, and if he was agitated and there was a need for Haldol, shouldn't I have been told? I was told he was fine. He was in a jerry chair. So um, the next day I went in and I saw him with his... He was out of it, you know, unconscious. His mouth was open. I said, you all have got him over-medicated. The doctor came in, who was the first time I met him, um, the social worker, um, the head nurse, uh, there's a couple other nurses or people in there. Um, and, you know, I said, I want him at the minimum dosages. You all have him over-medicated and, you know, why won't he wake up? And the doctor said, well, that could be the tumor. You know, um, he's dying all throughout the three and a half days he was there. He's dying. He's dying. I said, well, look, I'm praying for a miracle. Okay, I'm going to pray. This isn't his time. You know, I told them up there, too, um, that, well, the nursing supervisor, I forgot to mention, I think I forgot to mention that, she told me he would get his med regular medications if he could swallow, and I thought, well, why wouldn't he be able to swallow? And then you find out that these drugs cause difficulty in swallowing. Anyways, I had mentioned the drug to the doctor um, when everyone was in the room the next day, and he asked the head nurse, well, why didn't you know why didn't he get it? And she said, well, I didn't order it because he can't swallow. And the doctor said, we'll give it to him in injectable form. Um, and so then he started having breathing dif difficulties and apnea. And I asked the nurse, after they had gone, you know, um, I noticed that. And I asked her, and I said, is this due to these drugs? And she said, no, he's dying. Um, I asked three nurses on three separate occasions, and they all told me it was was not the, these drugs. Uh, he didn't have any of these symptoms before he went in there. He's walking and talking and, you know, eating. He didn't have any signs of dying um, and no pain. So 
So why would you go straight for the morphine? You know, that's against and the law. And those are the same words mm-hmm. that they tell everybody. They give them the drugs, which render them in a coma, and then when you ask, then they tell you the same thing. It's a dying process. Yes. And because we don't know any better, then we just assume, well, they're supposed to be compassionate, and we assume that that is what it is. So yeah. um, at that time when you went in to see him after he had fallen, he had a black eye and a bloody yes. nose, right? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Okay. And um, I had forgotten to mention that. Um, yes, and a bloody nose. And um, so that day I had all day putting ice on it and trying to clean his nose up. It was dried on blood. And, you know, they of course they weren't concerned about it at all. But, um, no. No. And so, meantime, his uh, face is swelling more. Um, it continued to swell, even though he did get the injection of the dexamethasone. Um, and that could have been due to the fall. I don't know, you know, and, and or the morphine or both. But anyways, I wanted to take him to the emergency room because I was very concerned. And they said, no, well, they won't be able to do anything for him. And if you leave here, uh, take him out of here, you can't bring him back. And I was so mad. I was so mad, you know, because I couldn't take him home and, and, and care for him. And that's why he was there. And But anyways, that's their policy. You know, you can't try to stay alive, I guess. Right, um, right. You're not supposed right. to fight to keep your I person was so, alive. I was so mad. I wanted to go ahead and pull him out. But um, I called the hospital and told them, I said, look, can you all admit him up here? Um, they say, if I bring him up there, he can't come back. And anyways, they called hospice. And then old hospice says, yes, you can you can take him and bring, then bring him back here. When I got there, the doctor said, he's dying you know, he just walks in. We's in hospice, and I'm just like, oh, my God. Um, so they gave him another CAT scan, which, you know, said that he had broken bones around his eye. So, so he had injured himself when he fell yeah, because yeah. they weren't there before. Right, right. So, And um, I noticed that he had a, had a bruise on his back, too. And at the time, I was so upset and just exhausted, not sleeping. And, um, you know, I just, it didn't occur to me, did he fall on his face or did he fall on his back? What what happened here? But anyways, um, so Friday, I had uh, left to go home. My son was there. Um, because after he fell, I stayed. I'm not, you know, going to leave him alone. And, and, well, before I went home, after um, he had fallen, um, after he had fallen, I had said no because they kept coming in wanting to give him more medication. Well, he's comatose. He's unconscious. Why would you give an unconscious person medicine? How do you know if they're not over-medicated? I mean, that's just, it makes no sense to me. And they said, well, we're trying to stay ahead of the pain, and I wouldn't let them. I I did allow them to give him um, medicine uh, every, I think, six hours, six or seven hours. And I couldn't, I mean, by Friday, I couldn't figure out why wouldn't he wake up because I'm thinking you're giving a pain medicine, a little anxiety medicine, but still. You shouldn't be uh, almost comatose. In a coma. Exactly. Exactly. If you're getting them on a schedule like maybe six to eight hours apart. So I had no idea how how much they had given him all this time. Um, And so uh, back to Friday. Um, So I went home about 5, my son was there, and uh, my son calls me as soon as I get home. Um, They want to give him Ativan and uh, morphine, and I told them not to give it together because a doctor I used to see years and years ago said never give two drugs together. I told them that, and I said no. And then they were working on my son, and they said... um, 
They told him, well, Ativ- he might be having a seizure, and Ativan can be used for seizures, too. And I said, I'm coming. So I turned back around and went back up there. <coughs> they give it to him. Um, he was, you know, in asleep. And um, a new nurse came in I'd never seen before. And she wanted to give him Haldol, and I said, oh, no, absolutely not, because I didn't know what Haldol was. It was an antipsychotic, but it's also a powerful sedative as well. And I said, no, and um, she left, and she came back a few minutes later with two aides, and my husband moved his hand to his face, and one of the nurses said, see, he needs medication. I said, no, he doesn't, because he moves. I was so. Uh, oh my God! Because you're still breathing. Yes. Um, now, so during the three and a half days, uh, the only words he he said help me a couple of times, and they said he was in pain, and you know they're just trying to get get me to give him more medicine and more medicine. That's exactly right. I wouldn't right. let him. Right, but uh, you know I did think well he fell, and you know he is in pain from that, but I didn't want him to you know every two hours and so forth. And they didn't like that. That was frowned upon. Um, so, yeah, she, um, so the next day, Saturday, uh, G- general nurse practitioner, who I'd never seen before, came in. My husband, he's unconscious. And she, um, I, first of all, I complained to her about the nurse who wanted to give him Haldol because he moved. And, you know, I told her my concerns about being him being over-medicated. And, um, and, and giving Ativan and morphine together. And she said something like, um, well, regardless of what you've read on the Internet, we've been doing this a long time. We know what we're doing. And I said, well, drug interactions aren't a conspiracy theory. I was so, you know... You know, don't talk to me like that. Okay, I didn't know what these drugs were. Um, I didn't know what they were about. I didn't know they were lethal. And they don't tell you because if they did, you wouldn't give them to your family exactly. members. You, your loved ones, exactly. you would not. And, and she's right. They've been doing uh-huh. this for years. Yes. And unfortunately, those of us who are ignorant to this, did not know that this is what they were doing to snuff out our loved ones. It happened right before my eyes, and I didn't even know, you know. No, we don't. But, um, yeah, in the nurse's notes, it was recorded that I asked on three separate occasions and what they told me, educating, that this was the dying process. If I were informed as I should have been, why am I asking three times about these drugs? Exactly. <clears throat> so, But the fact is they're not going to tell you what the plan is because right. you would object. If yes. we went in and, you know, they told you, well, your husband's in here and we're just going to go ahead and pass him over. It, it's time for him to die and we're going to give him the drugs and he's going to take his last breath you would never have gone along with that. You would have put him back in the hospital and not let him go on back to hospice. Correct, correct, correct. You are absolutely right. And um, so my husband is um, unconscious, and she asked me, can they put him on a morphine pump? <laughs> and I said, no. Why would they want to do that anyways? Um He's right next to the nursing station. And, you know, um, morphine pumps, they can malfunction. Um, That has happened before. So I said no. um, And she left. And according to medical records, she doubled his dose. He's not exhibiting any pain or more pain. Why would you double someone's dose? For no medically justified reason. Um, and then because I you found, have a plan. Uh, yes. I found out through medical records that they had been giving him Haldol 
against our knowledge for no medically justified reason because he wasn't agitated. Um, and that's how you said no. Oh, yes, it was the next day because Friday I told right. that nurse no. So they went ahead and did it anyway. That's against the law. <clears throat> and I didn't even know it. You slip a slip it in his mouth, a few drops of morphine, Ativan, and Haldol. We don't know what they're giving him. We don't know how much they're giving him. I did find that after he fell, they gave him three doses of morphine, three doses of Haldol, and three doses of Ativan in within two hours. That's a lot of medicine. That's way too much. Any and of us would go into a coma. Yes. In addition, uh, they gave him two um, HBR suppositories. Ativan, Haldol, Benadryl, and Reglan. Uh, so, and according to medical records, he was barely breathing uh, at 7:30 when they gave him another dose of all that. So he was having um, side effects from that overdosages. I'm surprised he lived. I mean, the medical records were a horror when I found out what they did, what they said. Haldol was used as a chemical restraint. The doctor mm-hmm. wrote that he had given it because my husband tried to w- get out of bed. Um, he did try to get up twice to use the bathroom. <clears throat> so that was, you know, there was just no and no agitation, nothing like that. Of course... The medical records were falsified, saying he was yelling, screaming, fighting stuff. It didn't happen while I was there. It didn't happen, you know, when my son was there. Um, so, yeah. It was also falsified, stating that he was admitted with uncontrollable pain and agitation, which wasn't true. He wasn't in any pain. And he wasn't agitated. He was calm when he got there. I mean, he was calm at the hospital where he'd been transferred from. So they falsified that, making it look like to any complete agencies that he was actively dying, which there was no, you know, symptoms that I could see of that. I mean, usually when people die from cancer, if that's what he had, um, they're in pain, severe pain. Um, He wasn't. So... They concocted the records to, you know, make it look like everything was done right. And um, But he was overdosed, and uh, he, um, so that later that day, um, his fingers started turning blue, and um, they told me he was dying now. Um, that's a sign of dying. And It's uh, also a sign of an overdose. And I didn't know that. Right. I didn't know no. that. I was I was not. heartbroken, you know, because I just wasn't prepared. No one's ever prepared for the death of their loved one, but he just didn't have any, you know, like I said, he was doing good before walking around. He was walking around singing until he got the, um, started having anxiety. He was doing well, very well. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to take him to the hospital emergency room and the nurse um, took me and my son outside of the room and said they're going to put him on a respirator um, and you'll have to to just make a decision later to take him off of it Um, they'll break his bones doing CPR and all of that and I'm just like oh my gosh you just lose all hope you know of course you know had I not listened you know, my husband could have lived if they would have gave but him you don't, naloxone. But you can't blame yourself for that because you listened to what all the medical professionals were telling Correct. you. And Correct. you assumed they were not lying to you. Yes, I, I trusted them. And I think we you all could, do. Certainly. Because you don't expect to be lied to and um, concealing, you know. All of these side effects and the lethality of these drugs, and you don't expect somebody to be intentionally killed, and that's what was done here. No, you don't. In you his don't. case. 
Um, looking at the Haldol, it says that it is used to treat psychotic disorders like mm-hmm. schizophrenia, to control motor movement like Tourette's syndrome, and it's used to treat severe behavior problems in children. Well, now, why on earth were they giving this to Alan? Well, why did they he give had none it? None of those symptoms. And and why right. do they give it to everybody who goes in um, is treated in hospice? The, this it's the one size fits all for every right. patient. The same drugs basically. Um, so everybody and, is schizophrenic when they go in, right. I guess. And antipsychotic, and there just weren't any symptoms, a need for these drugs. Um, he did need something for anxiety, and I. Um, I didn't realize that Ativan was this, uh, by another name, is lorazepam. And years right. ago, um, I couldn't sleep, and I had gone to the doctor, and he gave it to me, he gave me a prescription, and I took one. I was out for eight hours. And so from the medical records, in three days, they gave him 24 milligrams of Ativan. That's why he wouldn't wake up, in addition to... 400 milligrams of morphine, 12 milligrams of Haldol, which I had refused, um, the ABHR, yeah. So uh, no one could live through that. And, Nobody. And, and and people that don't have diseases are killed by these drugs. Um, there's an article written in the Washington Post did. Um, about people going in for pain treatment or respite care, and they're not terminal, and they're all given these drugs, the same drugs. Why? And they died. Of course they do. The um, regulation states, um, which if we get a chance, I'll go over some of the medications, but it states in there that you're not supposed to give this to the elderly for all kinds of precautions are in there, Mm -hmm. you know, cause depressed breathing, rapid Mm -hmm. heartbeat, you know, nausea, vomiting, um, constipation, but it is okay to give it to a hospice patient. No, well, it's not. Why on earth, when a person is at the end of their life, if if they truly are, would you want to give them something that has so many reactions to it mm-hmm. that you can give them a horrible death? How is mm-hmm. that compassionate? It is. No, it it's torture. It's torture it is, is what it is. It also causes difficulty swallowing, throat closing, and that's a medical emergency. Right, but, exactly. Know, so when you went to the funeral home, you mm-hmm. he did do some tests for you, toxicology test. When I went to the funeral home, we had to view his body, and when I saw him, I said, you know, what the heck. I was shocked because... Um, the the his eye, the side of his face that was swollen was all purplish, discolored, and because of that, they had um, either the coroner come down or medical examiner, and did a blood test and a vitreous humor. Uh, they got fluid um, from that, and uh, so I finally, I think in April, got the lab results of that and which showed 1.7 morphine, um, and I had to look that up. And in overdose deaths, um, when patients or whoever was given had taken 10 to 80 milligrams of morphine, uh, the blood level would be 0.5 to 0.26. My husband's was 1.7, so how much did they give him? Exactly. He was it overdosed. Was and that's outrageous, an outrageous amount of morphine for someone not in pain. I mean, he was in pain from the fall, but you don't, you know, if if I fall or break my arm and go to the doctor, they don't give you morphine. They might give you Tylenol with codeine, something milder. They don't just go straight for the morphine, do they? Why? Why do this? Just because he had a terminal disease. Well, you wouldn't balls. get that much anyway. You wouldn't exactly. get that, I mean, 24 milligrams in addition uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, it was 400 milligrams. 400 milligrams. Right. You wouldn't give days. that to somebody in a three-day period. 
No. And what amazes me is that anybody can look at these records, look at how much was mm-hmm. given, and not say that that is premeditated murder. Oh, this was intentional. There's no doubt in my mind. They all are. Yes, yes. So you yeah. were able to, after you got the results back, you were able to have the certificate changed from cancer. Well, right? um, I contacted or- the the medical examiner that did the test, and he confirmed to me what I read, 0.5 to 0.26 um, would be 10 to 80 milligrams. Um, so then I contacted the medical examiner and asked if she would change it. She would not. She would not change it from uh, cancer as it was listed on the death certificate to an overdose death, which it clearly was. And the reason was that... Um, these amounts of morphine are typical in hospice patients. And she knew, because I had written her the whole story, everything they did, that he was not having pain from cancer. And she still refused to do it. We went back and forth and back and forth. And they finally, they changed it from um, his death was not cancer. They changed it to he died from the fall, and cancer contributing nothing mm-hmm. about this this overdose so they they're covering up the truth and uh, the complaint agencies they read falsified records and say nothing done wrong here exactly so exactly. so, so yeah. the um the additional information about the coroner information about overdoses 19 patients were overdosed yes that um uh, CBS News, I believe it was 60 Minutes, did a show, an article of, entitled A Question of Homicide um, Diagnosis Cancer about a woman who was put into hospice. She was diagnosed with cancer, and the coroner found out that not only did she not have cancer, she was overdosed to death. He um, also found, uh, I think, a total of 19 other hospice patients who had been overdosed. I believe it was by the same hospice, and he was fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had another uh, panel of coroners, I guess, or a panel of independent whatever, who um, said that um, they weren't overdosed deaths. And so, yeah. Which so, is a cover-up. And uh, that's yes, what we've, it's a big cover we've up. all found, mm-hmm. that it's a cover-up. Um, the other thing that that you found out was that 3,000 nanograms could kill 12 people? In that article. In it, that article. Uh, in that article, um, it was, they stated that uh, the woman, the article was about, um, was given 3,000 nanograms and... Um, I put it through uh, 1.7 in a converter, and it came out to seven. My husband was given 1,700 nanograms, if that is correct. So, if mm-hmm. 3,000, 3, they said, yes, if 3,000, 12 people. 12 people. The article stated, and right. so, in in my husband's case, would 1,700 nanograms kill five or six people? Right. I mean, that exactly. was a lot of morphine. Um, so, yeah, so hospice is getting away with murder. And and after that, you also contacted, um, Kepro. Yes, I did. And the hospice doctor, um, said that nothing was done wrong. It was the standard of care. Um, he said that my husband was um, actively dying when he got to hospice, and I couldn't accept it, apparently, this fact. Um, so, yeah. Right. <laughs> they, um, Kepro, or Kepro is Keystone yeah. Peer Review Organization, and it is for overlooking hospice care for patients with have Medicare yeah. and it's overlooking that 
I know with my mom's case that I also contacted them and in great detail told them what they had done to my mom, and they come back and say, same as they did with you with Alan, no foul play here. Um, They did everything in accordance with their standards. So here's the problem. Their standards are so low that if you go into hospice, it is naturally assumed you are going to die in whatever period of time. And so no matter what they do to you and what drugs they give you and the fact that a healthy young person would die from the amount of drugs that they are given, it does not matter if you were in hospice because those amount of drugs will be given to you. It is not considered premeditated murder, and yet that is what it is. So if you take your loved one to a hospice, just make sure you know what they're giving them, make sure you know what you're signing up for and that you're part of the plan because this is happening across the country, not just in the United States and not just one or two states. It is happening across globally. And our listeners, if you haven't experienced it, we hope you don't experience it, but you just need to be aware of this. These are real stories. This is not made-up stuff. So I'm sorry, Liz. Um, it's, um, I mean, after hearing our stories, how can anyone use hospice? How can, you know, because this happened before my very eyes, you know, like I said, and I didn't even know. I didn't know the amounts that were being given. I didn't know how it all was being given. Um, so they could, you know, like I said, put anything under their tongue, and you would have no idea. Um, they also they also gave my husband a suppository, um, supposedly because he hadn't had a bowel movement. Um, but morphine comes in suppository form, so you don't know if that's, for constipation or if it's for Tylenol, you don't know. You have no way of knowing until you get medical records and hope they're not falsified, that they're telling the truth and giving what they said they were. Um, And when you move a patient that is already somewhat agitated, maybe having hallucinations, um, you move them around, you're going to cause discomfort and they can move them on their side, and then they, you know, start moaning, and they can convince the family members, see they're in pain, to let you give them more morphine so that they can quicken the amount of time that it's going to take them to murder your loved one. That's right. That's it, right. It just happens like that, and it's not conspiracy theory. This is what is happening. Um. Yeah, they um it it's a horror story i mean it, it really is and the thing of it is too if anything could be worse than what happened is that it's happening every day to other people and nobody's intervening centers for medicaid services are not doing anything they're not no. holding anyone accountable they're not trying to step in to stop these crimes that they knew about and of the Office of Inspector General's reports. And uh, I read one from 2007, who, and they had detailed all of these things, uh, fraud, um, abuses, um, neglect. Um, all of this was presented to... Uh, Centers for Medicare Services, and they they recommend steps to take. And CMS just says they don't have the authority. They don't have the funds. Well, 2007 to 2019 is 12 years. They've had plenty of time to. But look do how much money they've don't. saved. Yes. Look how much money they've saved in the process of getting rid of people instead of taking care of them medically. And Mm -hmm. there is a new bill that is out now that they are trying to add $440 million more into creating more hospices. Why? Because the baby boomers are coming towards 
getting older, and they're going to need to have a place to go where they can be eliminated. It, it is a sad fact. It, that is what is happening. So if they bring this new bill in, they put more money towards it, more hospices are going to crop up all over the mm -hmm. country because it's big money. They're making a lot of money, and every year that amount increases. Correct. It, it is a money-making situation, even if they are considered nonprofit. Um, so this is I, the truth. Yes, yes. Right. They're making the, a lot of um, money. They're saving a lot of money. That's right. That's right. And people's pockets are getting deep. And the guardianship, which you know we didn't get into because our situation is not that, but Marty Oakley talks about that on her show, and mm -hmm. older people are being guardianized, and when they are, they take all their assets, and they are taking them away from their children. They have adult children who want to take care of them, and they are taken away. There is right now a situation where an elderly lady in Alabama was a school teacher, and she has been completely removed from her daughter's care. Not that her daughter did anything wrong, but they've taken her away and refused to let the daughter see her mother. And, yes. it, I mean, it's horrible. Yes, and you she know, we was put in hospice. Right, right. And she, the pictures we've seen, I mean, she is, is drugged, and, you know, their um, Life Legal Defense Foundation is trying to step in and help her, but... You know, it's a big fight, and there aren't but a few people fighting it. So we need people to be aware that taking your loved one into hospice, you know, unless you already know that they are really, you know, dying and they have cancer and they're very, very sick and in a lot of pain and you know that this, that they need this morphine and you were told exactly what that drug will do, then you as the family make the decision but with consent and with knowledge of what's going to happen. In the case with Liz, as she's telling you, the case with my mom, and a lot of cases with the people that we've talked to, that was not the case. That individual person was not dying, and the families were not told about what was going to happen to them once they started giving them the drugs. In fact, the families were not even told that they were giving them the drugs. As Liz points out, she found out about the drugs that they were getting after reading the medical records. And even after she stated no, they still gave him drugs that she did not consent to. Um, the other thing that she mentioned tonight about her husband said, are you my wife? When they're given these drugs, it, it's causing a milky glaze over their eyes, and they can't see. They can hear, but they can't identify what's around them. Is this really the last memories that is correct for our family members to have, not to be able to say goodbye to their loved ones, not to know what their surroundings are, not to be able to see people, to talk to people, to be able to speak? This is cruelty. This is not compassionate. This is not the way that anybody's chapter should be written. Their last chapter should never be like this. It is wrong. It is premeditated murder. And if we don't stand up against it, more and more this is going to happen. Those of us who have experienced it now will protect our loved ones from it, and we're doing the documentation that we need to keep it from happening to us. Um, I do want to mention that, Liz, I appreciate you so much mm -hmm. for coming on and telling your story you. and very much for having the Murdered by Hospice Facebook group that has been a big lifesaver to us, um, to many of us. Um, Marty, could you come on and just for a few minutes talk to us about the um, Whistleblower Summit coming up next week? Yes, yes. Um, I'm sorry. Um, it starts uh, actually on the night of the 28th with the reception at the Clark Morrison Hotel for all the summit goers. And then on the 29th, we'll have our panel there in defense of the family. We will be discussing uh, briefly there about the hospice situation, but in more detail in other places and meetings we're attending and planning to participate in. Um, the summit runs from the 29th through the 1st. This year is our first annual film festival. 
and that will be at the Library of Congress. And I will be there uh, for Sharon DeLobo to represent her documentary, The Unforgivable Truth. Um, so I'll be presenting for her there. Um, this is such a, an invaluable time to network with other whistleblowers. Um, we've faced a lot of opposition because they don't think these issues qualify as whistleblowing. But I think when you are actively murdering the seniors in this country and robbing their families, we got a problem. I think somebody needs to speak up and say something. So whether you term us whistleblowers or simply advocates or activists, we have a right to speak, and we are going to speak. So see you all there. I hope you can, if you can make it, please, please join us. We need everybody there we can get. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you again, um, Liz. Is there anything you want to add? Um, just please beware. Protect your loved ones. Um, research all drugs. Um, never leave your loved one alone. That that's a very thank good you. point. That's thank a very you for good having point. me. Well, thank you for telling your story. I'm I'm hoping that it'll help others. Um, we will be back in two weeks on August the seventh, and we hope you'll join us then. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight, and we hope you've learned something from what. Liz has talked to you about. All right. Good night, everyone.